Burning questions. Insightful answers. Listener's choice. With Clement Maniatella. On our Listener's Choice feature today, we're discussing the salaries of vice chancellors. One of our listeners wants us to understand whether indeed they are exorbitant and how do you judge that against and how are these salaries determined? Um, you may have seen in the last couple of days vice chancellor salaries being thrust in the spotlight after an inquiry by the Council for Higher Education, which laid bare, I uh, suppose, the weaknesses in how these institutions remunerate their executives. And they've been warning that, that the pay is often not linked to performance. So the council has found several flaws in how vice chancellors are paid and how their bonuses are determined. The University of Johannesburg, for instance, tops the list with a 7.1 million rand salary for its vice chancellor. In 2019, university vice chancellor's average total cost to company was just over 4 million rand, with the lowest total cost to company being the University of Venda at just over 3 million rand. So are these multi-million rand packages for university CEOs warranted? And are universities able to justify uh, these salaries and PECs? You can give us your thoughts, or if you've got questions for my guest who's going to help us understand this, you can call us on 011-883-0702 or send us a WhatsApp voice note on 072-702-1702. Maybe you understand the work of vice chancellors um, and you think that the salaries are worth the work that they do. Or maybe you've got some questions you don't understand even about what the council has found um, through its inquiry. Kayase Tole is a chartered accountant. He's going to help us understand these matters much, much better. Kaya, thank you for making time for us. Good morning. Good morning and good morning to the listeners. So, what in a nutshell have, has the council found in its inquiry when, when they're looking at the salaries of vice chancellors? Do they generally think that they are exorbitant or is the issue here that the universities themselves are not able to justify these, these high salaries and PECs? So I think we probably need to go back to the original problem statement. And the problem statement was that in 2019, there were concerns that were raised about whether um, indeed vice chancellors were being overpaid in relation to the services that they're offering to the sector. And of course, the context of those years is quite important. We had just had the Sismas Toll movement, where obviously the questions around the finances of public higher education institutions in general were under great scrutiny. And so what the Minister of Higher Education then committed to doing was that he said he was going to commission a study that was going to establish exactly what happens within the sector. And of course, the question of whether it is exorbitant was one that should emerge as a result of the research that the Council of Higher Education was then asked to do. They were supposed to have actually reported in 2021 about this particular process. And for a variety of reasons, it's obviously taken this long for them to get here. But the crux of the issue is that Across the 26 public higher education institutions, the question of remuneration for vice chancellors is really quite a difficult one and a diverse one. And at the heart of it is the reality that all the institutions do exactly what they think is necessary for them to attract the talent that they want. So you get 26 different answers, you get 26 different performance parameters, and that's how you've ended up with a sector where there isn't a singular reference point of what vice chancellors should be paid and how they should be remunerated. Mm. So everybody gives you a very different answer. And that's what the report essentially said were the results of its findings. 
so what are they recommending that there be a standardized um, and a regulated kind of process when it comes to the remuneration of these vice chancellors? Will that make it better, sort of amend what they think is, is a defect? So the main issue, of course, was that individuals like Professor Adam Habib had actually even said that there ought to be a regulation of the salary scale. The motivation behind regulating pay was obviously the reality that some institutions have got better access to resources than others. And if a university is able to offer much better pay packages, they're inevitably going to attract the best academics out there, which simply means that you're going to end up with a concentration of academic talent and leadership talent at universities that can offer the biggest paychecks. So the theory was that if you could at least regulate that, that it would simply mean that those that want to lead institutions of high learning would simply identify the institution where their skills were probably best placed and then say that I'm going to go there, rather than shopping around for where the best incentives might be and then going to those particular institutions. So that was essentially what we were trying to unpack here. So what the council has done so far is to simply give us the data and the feedback from what has actually emerged from its research. The question of whether this ought to be regulated is a difficult one because the first thing that you'd have to unpack is who will then be empowered to determine what the right salary scales are going to be. And the obvious reality, Clement, is that if you've been the vice chancellor of 702 for the past two or three years, you earn a particular income, mm. and then I come as a minister the day after, and then I say, no, the salary scale should be pegged at a different amount that is very low to what you had signed up for. We've got particular tensions there because we're now interfering with an existing contract that has made particular promises to you for the duration of that contract. So it will have to be a very phased-in approach, and you'd also have to be very clear about who actually should regulate this and what should be the parameters for regulation. The, big, the most difficult element of that regulation would be simply the fact that institutions are different. The focus issues of different institutions are very diverse. So some institutions will say, we think the most important our performance indicator for our vice chancellor is fundraising. Others will say it's the research output. Others will say it's the access to the student success. So you're going to have to reconcile the different performance indicators before coming up with what may be used as a baseline reference number for what a vice chancellor should or should not be paid. But as, as from what the council has found, having had a conversation, a conversation with these universities, what is their baseline? How are they justifying? the salaries that they're, they're paying their vice-chancellors? Oh, quite simply, they're not. And I think when you look at what the, what the council said, is that, look, in their engagements with different universities, some provided information that then turned out to be completely senseless, but it had to be corrected. Some claimed that they couldn't find the information. But also the most important limitation was that when they were then asked to explain the reasoning behind some of the numbers that the council was confronted with, they then quite simply couldn't get uh, a very uh, you know, cogent answers about this is how we decided what the baseline should be, this is what we decided what the performance parameters should be, this is how we evaluated this particular vice chancellor's performance, and therefore this is the number that we decided to award mm. in a particular year. So obviously because... There were no rules that say that for every single council or for every single remuneration structure within a council, in order for them to uh, award a particular pay to a vice chancellor, this is the information that they need to provide, especially to the council internally and also perhaps to the council of higher education should they ever ask for that parameter, that those guidelines did not exist. So obviously, now that you're doing a retrospective analysis, you're getting completely mixed 
data set that you can only reconcile by setting guidelines for the future for saying that next time if you want to do this, this is what needs to be documented so that should we ever do another benchmarking exercise, the information must be readily available. But unfortunately, in this report, the information was just a mixed bag of, yeah, a lot of uh, mixed masala. It's so interesting though, Kaya, because what, does it mean I I could have gone to UJA or to UCT and they said, hey, we want you to be vice-chancellor, we think you've got the skills, and I say, oh, I want 10 million rand, and they could give that to me? Well, 10 million does sound like on on the extreme, but that's (laughs) the reality of how people negotiate their way through this particular conversation, because obviously what is very clear is that every single institution wants the vice chancellor with the deepest insights, the deepest expertise, you know, the academic track record, and also the leadership track record. So these are not 20 or 25 year olds that you're trying to onboard. You're trying to onboard, onboard senior leadership. Mm. And the senior leadership and perhaps the most, the best senior leaders out there are the ones that are probably going to find a job elsewhere. So if they then go and they consult their own remuneration specialists and then they say, look, this is the range that you should be pitching at. And they feel that the right, the university is able to meet that, then they'll pitch at that. It's always a process of negotiations. I don't think anyone ever gets the number that they had in mind. So mm. there's always a meeting of the minds. But obviously, some minds meet at a much higher salary scale than others. So why do we then feel that these salaries are outrageous? Because um, as you say, you know, some of these uh, people are bringing in the skills. And yes, there may not be a correlation between how much they're paid and maybe their performance or the number of student enrollments or th- that knowledge output, the research uh, papers that you spoke about. But how do we then make a determination whether or not they're being paid low or they're being paid outrageously and they're overpaid? Yeah, I, I don't think that there's been a categorical statement that says that pay is outrageous. All we have right now is the question yeah. of what the pay is. Now, the question of whether the pay is appropriate requires us to have a very detailed understanding of what exactly it is that they should be paid for. So that's where the issues become a bit more complicated because if somebody says, look, I run a research-intensive university and, you know, the issues that are important to a research-intensive university are very different to a university of technology, for example, which says that our focus is on producing graduates of a particular vocational, uh, you know, uh, expertise. So until we sort of have a universal understanding of what it is that we think all vice chancellors at a minimum, at a minimum should be paid for, so is it a question of success rates, throughput rates, as a research output, what is it that we want to say every single institution should say this is the starting point? And then obviously, depending on what the university decides is most important as part of its strategic agenda, then they can then say, well, in addition to that baseline definition, whatever that definition is, we think that since this is our priority for our institution, there should be an incentive to ensure that whoever we recruit as our vice chancellor is able to pursue that strategic agenda so that the university's strategy is aligned to what the the vice chancellor does. So whether these are outrageous or not is a matter of speculation. I think obviously there were a couple of outliers that were prominent in the report and the University of Johannesburg in, in particular seemed to be an extreme outlier. But again, the one thing that also emerges from the report is that the University of Johannesburg didn't do a very good job of explaining the basis for all of those numbers. 
So perhaps they're justifiable, but in the absence of that information, you cannot fault people for using the term like outrageous. But I would not attribute it to the Council of Higher Education. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I thought, for me at least, and you tell me what your thoughts are, was almost justifiable. Uh, when I looked at the report in 2019, the UCT was listing Professor Mamukheti, uh, Mamukheti Pakeng's salary at 3.2 million rand plus 1 million rand for additional services associated with running uh, this university, right? That's over 3 million rand. And then you look at um, the uh, Professor Oliswa Mtose, who was responsible for the affairs of the University of Zululand, with which at the time had about 17,900 students. That prof and over 4 million rand, about 4.45 million rand. But then you could take that as compensation because how many vice chancellors would be able to raise their hands and say, I'm willing to go to Zululand and go and be the administrator at that university. Yeah, and that is obviously one of the biggest challenges that we have in that whether people like it or not, the South African higher education landscape is really made up of what you may say three categories. You've got the historically white institutions where UCT and this in particular would be, which just happen to obviously have access to the greatest resources. They happen to be located in the most prominent places that people will want, where people want to stay. So that creates a particular attraction point for those particular institutions. Then you've got institutions that are based in rural outposts. So the US of Zulundland would be an example. Porter would be an example. That would be in the second category. And then you've got what we refer to as the, as the new entrance into this landscape, and these are the universities of technology, because historically they were classified as technicons and they were treated very differently to the general sector. So if you had to try and group the universities into those three brackets, you would already immediately see that the question of how these institutions can attract leaders is fundamentally different. All UCT and VIS and Pretoria have to do is simply put an advert. They'll be flooded with hundreds of applications because of just how attractive and how accessible mm. those institutions are in their location and the fact that people know that they probably can be able to negotiate upwards. When it comes to rural-based institutions, for example, I don't think anyone needs to be reminded of the current crisis at the University of Fort there where Professor Bushungum essentially has to live under 24-hour surveillance yeah. because of the safety issues associated with that. Mm. Now, unfortunately, by the time we get to reporting for accounting purposes, I will then say to the university, look, you only pay these security costs because the vice chancellor requires them. So I may then allocate it as part of his remuneration. And that obviously distorts the picture. You have the same problem at the University of Zululand where it's very clear that in the absence of providing safe accommodation for the vice chancellor and her leadership team, they simply wouldn't have taken up the job. But what the accounting rules dictate is that we must simply say that because all of these costs were incurred as part of this contract with the vice chancellor, they are part of the remuneration. So that's why we're careful to use the term total cost to the university rather than simply calling it a salary. Wow. So you can already see that there's different dimensions there where mm. the vice chancellor of, of the university may sound like she gets the highest salary, but if most of it is deferred towards the security expenditure and also, uh, you know, the housing accommodation, it never actually makes its way into her bank account. So you can really see how distorted the conversation becomes. But universities are responsible for explaining that to stakeholders so that everybody knows what it is that you're facing. Got it. Let's go to some calls and WhatsApps. Uh, good morning, Clement Tonya from Jameson. Vice Chancellor's salaries. This is a total rip-off. No wonder the majority couldn't afford it to go to university. We have to pay these guys millions. No way. This is a rip-off. 
Also, Clement, this talk about um, regulating VC salaries is ridiculous. I mean, regulation is it just sounds to me like communism and lowering everyone to some sort of lowest common denominator. I think it's about supply and demand. If a university is successful enough and wealthy enough to pay a higher salary, because that's what they think the job's worth, why should that be tampered with? Mm, okay. Uh, Kaya, any reflection on that? The first voice note, this person says it's a rip-off. No wonder uh, people, uh, some some people or many people are, don't have the funds to go to university. But it's not the responsibility of the university, is it, to make sure that a Clement who comes from somewhere in the Eastern Cape um, comes and can't, in fact, um, can be paid their fees to go through. I mean, that's why we've got things like NSFAS and other institutions have bursary programs as well. So that's that's a separate process, no? Yeah, it is. And the reality here is that we have to acknowledge that institutions are institutions that have to be led. Somebody has to be responsible for running the affairs of those institutions. And the reality is that there aren't too many people that have the capacity to run institutions that are as complex as this one. So if people need to be rewarded for the work that they put in, then they must be rewarded for the work that they put in. What might be a meeting point is to then say, well, for these vice chancellors that get paid so well, what are they doing in order to ensure access is achieved and, 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 you know, attained by as many students as possible? Because Mm. if one of your KPIs is how many poor students can access your institution through the fundraising efforts that you make and through the channels that you make for students to access the university, then I see that as a strong balance between the issues that we raise and that, you know, it it feels like you're getting paid a lot, but actually you're getting paid in order to ensure that we address the longer-term issues of access and inequality. So you have to get that balance right, but we simply cannot compare vice chancellor's salary to the question of, well, if a student cannot access the university, should we redirect that salary towards uh, ensuring access? Mm. It simply isn't that straightforward. Yeah, and, and the second voice note was, was about how ridiculous the issue of regulation is because what if, um, in fact, those salaries actually match their performance? What's wrong with, I mean, if we can say, okay, FNB or Standard Bank or whatever is paying their CEO 15 million rand uh, a year, why does it shock people when it comes to vice? Because they're essentially CEOs of these big institutions. Well, the first problem is that obviously we're talking about public higher education institutions. So the immediate instinctive reaction is to say, if it is a salary of a public high, uh, uh, higher education institution worker, uh, a vice chancellor, it is something that is linked to the question of the public purse. So people create that very... Um, problematic link to say if it's a public institution, it means it's public money that is being used and therefore we all have an interest, we all want to have have a say in relation to that. That's a complication that unfortunately we cannot avoid. The reality is that universities do operate under um, a regime of autonomy. And what that simply means is that all the minister has to simply say is that this is a higher education policy, this is what we want to achieve as a country. And then every single university has then got the ability and the right to then determine its own rules of engagement when it comes to how it uh, engages vice chancellors and how it remunerates them. So it is in the fact that everybody has got the autonomy to decide what works best for them, where the tension points come in, because somebody is going to come back and say, Pat, and they're all working for the public interest, and they are, why are some so well rewarded and others not so well rewarded? And that is obviously the problem that you'd have with the regulatory regime, because the first question is, what are we regulating? Are we regulating the right of a council to hire and negotiate with the person that they think is best suited for the role? 
What if the sum of all these regulatory interventions is simply that nobody good enough wants to be able to run this institution? Mm. Is it not then self-defeating to end up with the second tier or the third tier preferences simply because regulations say you cannot pay Clement what he thought he was worth and what even you as a council may have believed he was worth given the skills that is provided? Yeah. Is the intention, the intention here also not to address the pay gap that you could argue exists between the executive and the average worker? And ca- can we learn from, from other countries? I know there's a Canadian model that perhaps may be useful as a reference point for, for this task team. I think from the council's report, perhaps for me, that is a more important takeaway where they then also try to map the gap between what you may call the first tier um, executive salary band. So in most instances, it will be the vice chancellor and maybe the, de- the deputy vice chancellor. And then they then looked at the second tier of senior academics and, you know, maybe even the third tier and then try to map up whether the gaps within the institutions are themselves something worth interrogating. So obviously what you want to be able to do is to deal with the question of pay parity within institutions and then deal with the question of pay parity across institutions, which is a more difficult one. So I think from that report for me, that was the most important takeaway in that they did obviously interrogate and ask institutions, well, are these the type of gaps that you guys are comfortable with? Are you working towards addressing them? And if so, what is the work that is being done in order to address that? The question of international benchmarks is remarkably difficult in the, in the South African context because the first problem is that with all international benchmarks, you have to firstly normalize the data for so many other issues. So the first question is the currency fluctuations and the currency differences. That has an enormous, enormous impact on what you're trying to compare. Then the secondary question of, well, what is the pool of talent that exists within the country in order mm. for councillors to be able to say, well, there are enough people of stature and substance for us to be able to say, look, we like you, but we can find someone who's equally good at a much lower pay scale. So because South Africa doesn't have that type of depth of people who are quite good enough to even stand a chance of being a vice chancellor, we're dealing with a smaller pool. And that smaller pool, unfortunately, has got enormous bargaining power in relation to my house, they can, how much they can charge. Mm-hmm. And that's the manifestation that you see here. So if you're benchmarking across the globe, you're going to have to extract so many of the uh, 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 factors, the contextual factors that are either irrelevant to South Africa or would distort what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, someone was calling us now, Kai, and saying, isn't it shocking that the president ends less than these vice chancellors? <laughs> and he's running a whole country with over 56 million people. Well, some people would say the country is not being run particularly well. But yeah, you know, it's a difficult one because remember, Vice Chancellor's got a five-year term. The president will get paid that salary for life. So what are we comparing here? So again, there's a a very complicated uh, conversation that needs to be held around there, but I don't think comparing it to the president will be appropriate given the different way in which political uh, office bearer salaries, particularly for the president and, you know, senior political Mm -hmm. leaders are determined. Well, I say let's start reviewing the president's salary every single year and link it to performance how about that we tried it with the performance uh, management report that came up with the ministers and absolutely mm-hmm. no one knows where they are so maybe that's not going to help oh goodness yeah Kaya Sitole, thank you always great chatting to you man uh, Kaya Sitole, helping us understand uh, this report um, by the council for higher education that has found that there are quote-unquote exorbitant salaries for vice chancellors